2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. A few months ago, a stingray got pregnant. Except there were no male stingrays in the tank, which raised a question. Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? But scientists think... There is no daddy. And it's not just this stingray. All kinds of animals are getting pregnant all on their own. This week on Unexplainable, what exactly is going on here? Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors this week. First up is Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a website. If you have some idea you've been waiting to get off the ground, a business or a portfolio, anything you need a website for, there is not an easier, more beautiful way to do it than Squarespace. Uh, if you go right now to squarespace.com slash longform, you'll get 10% off with your first purchase, but you don't need to buy anything. You can try it all out. Uh, go check it out. Squarespace.com slash longform. Another thing for you to check out if you just want to do some reading, HP Matter, the new issue is out. It's on the idea economy. There are all kinds of fascinating articles about the future of business, all the ideas that are going to power our business future, including an essay by the CEO of HP, Meg Whitman. Go check that out, hpmatter.com. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. And here is that show. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm here with Aaron Lammer of Longform and Evan Ratliff of Atavist. You guys, it's good to see you. How are you? Hey, doing well. I, I injured myself in a cooking accident. Wow. <laughs> I, have a, I have my thumbs taped up. It does look like you received fine medical care. Is that a, is that a pro job? That looks like that um, tape that you use for uh, when you're painting and you need to pull it off. Yeah, it's, it, does a, it does a trick. Send your well wishes to Evan Ratliff. Yeah. R.I.P. The, the end of uh, Evan's thumb. I wonder how many times I need to say our address on this podcast before someone spontaneously shows up here. I would say it's a sign that no one's shown up yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Max, you took a journey away from the office. I did. I left 68 J Street and I went to Portland, Oregon. And uh, among the things I did there was uh, spend a couple of hours in Cheryl Strade's living room talking to her about her memoir, Wild, and the advice column she wrote for the Rumpus called Dear Sugar, and also just uh, about uh, living life. Can I say Can I say that? That's yeah. kind of what we talked about, was uh, life. Hey, live your life. Uh, there's definitely a question in here in which I said, fear, how do you deal with that? <laughs> <laughs> that I feel like you, an could, answer we could all use. you could just recycle that for almost every podcast. We it, it, it's definitely true that like I want to ask it every time. <laughs> But she's actually uh, written quite eloquently about that. But we talked about that. We talked about uh, going on vacation with Oprah. Yeah. Uh, we talked about having Reese Witherspoon play you in a movie. <laughs> we talked about uh, having all of this happen after you were dead broke. And uh, it was great, man. It was, it was a, uh, there's not a better way to spend a Monday afternoon than several hours in Cheryl Strayed's living room. 
It's, I think it's worth saying to to the listeners that we have a very long list of people that we want to get on the podcast. When people suggest people, we add them to that list. And Cheryl it's Street all has written been on, on the back of a receipt. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. We made that list uh, almost three years ago when we started the show, and Cheryl Strayed was on my list then, and I have now crossed her off. Our sponsor this week, as always, is Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. There's no simpler, more elegant way to get an email newsletter off the ground. Thank you, Tiny Letter. Now here's Max with Cheryl Strayed. Did you have like a rule if someone brought it to you directly? Like if someone said like, Cheryl, are you dear sugar? Would you say yes? Yes. I, I tried not to tell people, but if they asked me directly, yeah. I would say yes. I also got emails. But you wouldn't like drop hints and be like, man, <laughs> I, I really thought the last dear sugar was amazing. Well, the worst, okay, the hardest thing. So I had just written um, the column, How You Get Unstuck which is one of the most sort of famous mm-hmm. dear sugar columns. It's a letter from a woman who'd had a miscarriage and was really stuck in her grief and her, and her anger. And I wrote this, this sugar column where I told the story of these girls I worked with in, on the east side of Portland, these um, teenage girls who as their sort of like pregnancy prevention youth advocate counselor. And that column, I actually wrote it in the middle of the night. I, I, many of those sugar columns, because I was always up against it, I was paid nothing for those columns. So I never could prioritize that. I was doing so many things and I had two little toddlers. And I, so I wrote that column, like any number of those columns in the middle, you know, stayed up all night writing it. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was at the Sewanee Writers Conference. I had just arrived and stayed up all night in my dorm, wrote the column, sent it to Isaac Fitzgerald, who was at the Rumpus at the time. And it went, you know, on the website, like a few hours later. And so by that evening, I was at a cocktail party and the writers, Aaron Kyle and Nina McConnigley, were standing around talking about the latest Dear Sugar column. And they said to me, Would you, have you read this latest Dear Sugar column? It's, you know, you have to read it. It's so great. And it, it almost killed me because right. I'm like standing here with these two writers I adore and respect. And they're at a writerly cocktail party talking about something I've written. And there was this huge dilemma. You know, yeah. what, what do I do? And I, so I remained silent for a while. And then finally, at one point, I just looked at Aaron, Kyle, and I just said, I wrote that column. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell anyone. And she was like, oh, my God. And she and Nina, you know, they kept my secret. They kept my secret. So I didn't have any regrets in that moment, though. Well, I was always conflicted because then I had other that was sort of the first of those experiences where I was in the world. And somebody was talking to me about something I'd written and they didn't know I'd written it, which is a very strange experience. And so sometimes I would break down and tell them. And sometimes I would remain silent. And both in both cases, I felt unsure if I'd done the right thing. Because, of course, when you have a secret, you want to keep the secret. It's also fun to divulge the secret. And it's fun to have a secret with other people. So certainly there were there were many people in the in the lit world who knew that I was sugar before I revealed my identity because there was that kind of, you know, inner circle knew about it. Right. Were you reading the column when I was publishing it on the rumpus? Yeah. Yeah. Did you know it was me? Did you know who I no. was? So when I revealed, you were like, okay, who is this Cheryl Strait? Yeah. That was like, that was like the, uh, uh, like many people, I just Googled Cheryl Strait. Right. That was like the first thing I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't know. And like, well, what was the impetus for revealing it? Well, from the very beginning I knew I would reveal my identity. I mean, that's always some of the most interesting experiences, maybe all of them, 
you know, they become more interesting in, in retrospect, in hindsight, you know, you know everything that happened and how it came to be. And so often things seem more planned than they, than they actually were. You know, when I first took over the column from Steve Almond, from the very beginning, there was this discussion, should I be anonymous? He had been. Um, but he had also not been himself in the column. He was anonymous and trying to... Right, and a character. You know, be a character. And I, and I knew that I was going to be a persona on the page, but I was essentially going to be me. And, and sort of the meanness of it evolved over time. Like the first few columns, I think I was trying to be a little more funny and, you know, calling people sweet pea and being sort of sassy. But that sort of fell away with time. And it really was just me writing essays about life and about my life and my friends' lives and addressing people's problems. But from always from the beginning, I knew that this would be this anonymity thing would just be a piece of it for me. And that eventually I would say that I'd written the columns. And so every column I wrote, I wrote it as if my name were attached to it. Mm -hmm. I never wrote anything that I couldn't stand behind as Cheryl. And what that meant is there are all these stories that went untold. You know, I think I think one of the, the biggest misperceptions of a writer like me who, who has written so deeply about my own life and often about things that, that have been difficult or seem very personal, the, I think that people think that that means I've told them everything. You know, there are, there, are, there are many parts of my life that I haven't written about uh-huh. for reasons that have to do with protecting other people's privacy, for not wanting to hurt other people's feelings, I mean, I think that the interesting part of anonymity, if I'd been truly anonymous and sworn to that and stayed anonymous all, all my life, there are so many different stories I could have, I could have told that I didn't. I have so many questions. <laughs> you just touched on like, all these things I want to talk to you about. I'm very interested in like the, uh, the sort of pragmatic writing of an advice column uh-huh. and how you did that and whether those answers just came to you or whether you're, you would sort of like think about them and mull them over for a while. But you, you said something else that I want to uh, uh, talk about for a second, which is people feeling like they know you Mm -hmm. and uh, people feeling connected to you. And we're in Portland where you ended this book of yours, uh, Wild. And and right now there are something like 10, I read this morning, 10 times the number of people who are about to go hike the PCT (laughs) this summer, all of whom, or many of whom, feel connected to you, deeply connected to you through that book. How does it feel to have people trying to recreate your story, Mm. knowing that they don't actually know necessarily the whole story? Mm -hmm. Well, what I hope that they're doing, and I think in most cases what they're doing, is they're not really trying to recreate my story. They're trying to live theirs. And mine has inspired them in some way, made them brave in some way, opened them up to themselves in some way. That's what I hear from most people who write to me, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and you know, some of them are people who are going and hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. Some, most of them are people who are, who are doing something else. Um, sometimes that's a wilderness adventure. Uh, sometimes it's a quitting their job or deciding to, to end a relationship that isn't good for them anymore or any number of things, or just e- even in a more daily way being, braver or kinder or any, any number of things. One of, one of the most interesting things that, you know, in Dear Sugar, I was giving people advice and in Wild, I wasn't, but both are sort of read in that way. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they sort of blur together in terms of the, the, the effect that they have on people and the things that people you, say. Why do you think that is? I mean, they're very different 
books, you know, one's a collection of advice letters and columns, you know, and one is, you know, a memoir that's that's much more introspective in nature than the, the advice columns. But in both, I'm I'm really trying to to dig beneath the surface of the sort of everyday, and especially in this in the emotional realm, to really look at, you know, what have been my struggles, where have I failed, where have I risen. How did I dig my way out of the hole that I dug myself into? How did I contend with the bad things that happened to me that I didn't have any control over? You know, what was ultimately my answer to them? And so, you know, I think in both with, you know, with Wild, when you when you ask me about these people who are going to recreate my story, it would be impossible for them to do that. We can only live our own lives. I, I really hope, you know, that I've only been an inspiration that nobody's trying to replicate what I did, because you can't, of course, we all are on our own journeys, you know, and I, I, I use that word journeys, it can sound so woo woo, but I do think that life is a journey. And good things and bad things happen to us. And some of those things, um, sometimes we need to kind of step back and reflect upon them. And on my hike, that's what I was doing. So I think it's a wonderful thing that people are inspired to do that in their own lives, after reading Wild. All right, let's go back to Dear Sugar. Let's talk about let's talk about the, the how you actually did the process of writing that column. Right. So you get all these letters. Uh, I assume they, do they like come to your house? Yeah. Well, they're okay. So let's just back up. So yeah. first of all, you know, Wild and and Tiny Beautiful Things, which is a collection of my Dear Sugar letters. Those books were written sort of on top of each other. I, I always say Tiny Beautiful Things is like the book I wrote by accident because what happened is I wrote Wild wrote the first draft, you know, almost killed me the way it does to write a book, sent it off to my editor. And I was waiting to hear from her, her notes. There's that little lull where you have nothing to do. You've just done this huge thing and then you've got nothing to do. And this is when I took on the Dear Sugar gig and I began writing this column. And it was this little thing I thought I was going to do on the side. But you'd been doing all that work, like you had just gone and processed that whole period in your life. Yes. And all of my life has been a processing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even, even my first book torch, which is a novel, you know, it's an incredibly emotional novel, you know, and it, it too demanded a lot from me in that regard, having to, to forgive people and cry and understand mortality and love and, you know, all of these things, right. You, you have to do this, I think, to write a book. And so I, I was primed But so when I was asked to do Dear Sugar, I thought, well, this will be a lark. This will be a fun thing. This will finally be something where I don't have to be so, you know, heavy. (laughs) And so I was going to be like as funny as Steve Almond, you know, and I took it over. And there what happened is I it's it's kind of like the advice I give is Dear Sugar, like everywhere you turn, you know, there you still are. Right. we, We can't essentially escape who it is that we are. And I am, I, for better or worse, I'm a writer who likes to go into that subterranean emotional world and to talk about the mysterious and dark and beautiful places inside of us. Mm-hmm. And so with the Dear Sugar column, I found myself doing that. I, I, I always felt that story was the greatest consolation to me in my sorrow. And so when I started to try to help people in their sorrows and their confusions, I had to tell stories. I I think, you know, sometimes we think, okay, wait, 
Sugar is like talking about herself again. You know, here she is in this column. She was supposed to be helping him deal with this. And she's telling the story from her childhood. But what my intention was always, I'm going to use this story to help you, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that's where it, at least where I tried to always have those columns land where I might have told a story about myself, but it was really about the letter writer. It was really about um, how can that story illuminate a truth that is universal, not just for me, not just for the letter writer, but for the listeners. I mean, that column was like doing therapy in the town square. Yeah. Did that come naturally to you? Had you had you always been kind of wired that way? It did come naturally, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a huge surprise to me. Because when I first was offered the gig, I was like, oh, this is probably a bad idea, you know. How and come? Because it didn't pay anything. <laughs> right. Okay, one. I was absolutely broke. Um, really struggling. I mean, seriously, epically struggling financially. Um, had two little kids. My husband's a documentary filmmaker. I mean, we really, there were real reasons not to to do that. Because of course, you know, that's that's time spent on, on something that I, um, you know, wasn't making money for. And I already was. Like, I was writing, I was interested in writing my books, which right. was also unpaid work, right? So, you know, there's only so much unpaid work you can do. And so it was a bad idea. And yet, I sort of trusted my gut that I have to do this. But what happened is all those friends who I consulted, like, do you think I should do this? And they were like, oh, maybe not. They all were reading the column and said, Cheryl, you really found, like, you found your voice here in this form. And it was a surprise to me. I wasn't a fan of advice columns. I'd never read any number of advice columns before I began writing my own. I think it was this experience where I got to use everything I knew as a fiction writer and memoirist and then use it in this incredibly direct address. The the direct address of a letter just has an inherent power. You know, I am speaking directly to you. Like right now, if you told me your problem and I tried to help you with it. That's my secret plan for this interview. (laughs) There would be an intensity and intimacy that, that all the listeners could hear that would be different than if you said, you know, my friend has this problem. Right. You know, there is something about talking directly to somebody who was suffering that allowed me to be, I think, more fearless than I'd ever been. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because that column read to me like just such from written from such a place of, of confidence and kind of like wisdom and, and knowledge. And they, they almost felt fully formed. Like that was one of the things I was wondering about. It's like, you know, I'd read the letter and I'd be like, man, I have no fucking clue what I would say to that person. <laughs> and then you would come out with this answer and it'd be like, that is the exact right thing to say. Like, would you get that letter and like go on a long walk? Would you know immediately where you were going to land? I would go on a long walk. Yes. And think, I never knew I would, where I would land. I've been a writer, a serious writer, since I was like 19 or 20. And I would say that the difference between being a writer now in my 40s versus being a writer in my 20s is that I have just learned how to trust the mystery of the writing process. And I think that the most important thing that I've learned to trust is that that I don't know where I'm going to land, and it's okay, but to to follow the path, you know, where it leads me. If for some reason I keep thinking about this one experience I had, you know, going to a hippie retreat center with my kids and casting a a hunk of bread into the fire. If I feel like I have to tell that anecdote, 
about being with my kids on the winter solstice at a hippie retreat and we're grabbing these hunks of bread and we're casting into the fire something that we need to let go of. Like if for some reason I read a letter from from somebody who's struggling with something and I need to to tell that story, what I do is I write it and I trust that that there's something intuitive there's some intuitive place within me that's sort of driving me forward as, you know, say like write that story and then see where that leads you next. And I would say about 90% of the time it led me to a place that was really powerful and fertile. And and then other times it's like, yeah, I, I for some reason I want to write this story in relation to this letter and I can't land it. I can't figure out how to make, to, to build that bridge between the two you know, scenarios. Do you know what I'm talking about? How so often in the sugar letters, it would be like, here's the problem. And then I would start with some like story that seemed completely <laughs> not not yeah. connected at all. You know, what is like the woman with a miscarriage? What what are the three girls I, you know, that I wrote about? You know, what did, what do those people have in common? As a reader, I'm sort of like trusting your instincts the same way you're trusting your instincts. Right. I mean, if what I'm hearing you say is, I knew the fact that I was gravitating towards that story meant there was something there yeah. and there was some, there, a bridge would form even if I didn't know exactly what it was. Yeah. That's how you read those columns too, is you're like, I don't understand how this story is possibly going to connect to this question, <laughs> but uh, I'll stick with it. And right. then, and then it, w- it would, they always landed. Like that's, they, you <laughs> know, they, you. they land. And I wonder whether like, was that part of who you had always been or did that, was that something that just started when you started to do that column and you found that voice and you found like we were able to trust in those connections, like were you someone that your friends went to for advice? Yes, absolutely. I mean, but it's interesting. I don't give advice in that way, mostly because we don't, we don't allow each other to give advice in that way. Mm -hmm. If a friend asked me for advice and I sat there and started to tell, you know, some story that seems completely unrelated. She would just be like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, like <laughs> I, I'm talking about my, my husband or whatever, you know. But um, I think that trusting intuition in the writing process is something that absolutely is present in both my life and my writing in its other forms. But I will say in the sugar column, it's more pronounced, you know, and it is because in the difference between giving advice and writing a short story is that you, you actually are trying to be um, explicit and direct in ways that you're trying to be discreet and subtle in other ways. And the other thing though, I want to just say about intuition and like, oh my gosh, I don't know how this is going to land is that, that, so you trust the intuition, but then there is this point in the writing process where you damn well better know what you're doing. (laughs) You damn well better know the connection that the intuition falls away, that you, that you use that, you trust the intuition to get to that place you need to go as a writer. But then it's not all just like, you know, I don't know how it's connected. I just know it is this kind of, it, it sounds poetic. And so it must mean something like, that never has worked for me. I've always had to eventually say, no, this is, this is the bridge. You know, the bridge between this letter writer's problem and this story I just told is right there. What does that look like in a practical sense? Like what, what, is, what does doing that work mean? Well, it's things like, so for example, this letter, how you get unstuck. Like I said, the letter writer wrote about having a miscarriage, how grief stricken she was about this, how she blamed herself. She was angry at the people around her who didn't sympathize. And I tell this story about working as a youth advocate with these girls who had you know, incredibly difficult lives. Their fathers were in prison. Many of them had been victims of sexual abuse. Their mothers were often drug, drug addicts or mentally ill. They had hard lives. And I wrote about 
the ways that I tried to help them and the ways that I finally had to accept that like there was only so much I could do for them. Mm-hmm. That really the only way, what I figured out is when I was a youth advocate is, and I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to help people who need help, okay? But ultimately the truth is that we have to help ourselves. You know, we all benefit from people helping us, but we will never get anywhere if we don't help ourselves. And so what I offered this letter writer who was suffering was this thing I'd learned in working with the girls, which is healing is entirely and absolutely up to you. And so here you are, you're suffering and you're suffering legitimately. And now how are you going to change your life? Because nobody's going to do it for you. And that's what I witnessed those girls doing, the ones who did go on and not replicate Mm -hmm. the lives of their mothers. And so, you know, so there were these two, there are these two stories. There's the story of the girls and there's the story of the woman who had a miscarriage. But, but the truth that runs like a river beneath it is the universal truth that we all are responsible for our lives. We will all suffer and we all need to find light in that darkness, strength in that in that weakness, you know? And so uh, was that something that that even at that point in your life, you were still working on and like trying to internalize yourself? Always. That's the funniest thing. And and the most uncomfortable thing I think about being, you know, being sugar is like, it's, it's never, and I'm always saying this in the column and and whenever I can talk about it, it's like, it's not as if I'm some sort of font of um, wisdom and perfection. What I'm speaking to is like my own struggle. Like I'm, I'm talking to myself too all the time, every day. It's not as if I have the answer and I'm sort of, uh, I'm, I'm giving the answers. I, I'm in, instead really down there in the struggle, speaking to it, trying mm-hmm. to speak as openly as possible about what it means to be human. But, you know, it is funny that, that, that there, I'm always having to kind of answer this because I think it's, I think that advice columnists have been framed in this really weird way in our culture. Like as if, you know, as if dear Abby really was an expert. She wasn't. Dear Abby was a person, and in all of her humanity, I'm sure she was flawed, and she struggled, and she had secrets, and she did bad things, and she did good things, and she was she was not the boss of anyone. We just think, decided that she could be. Don't you think part of that, though, is like that the advice columnist never just says, I don't know? Well, we wouldn't go to the advice column if they just said, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, in some, what, I, what I was first going to say is in so many ways, I often did say, I don't know. Like, I don't know if you should stay married to your spouse or not. Right. I don't know if you should invite your father to your wedding or not. But here are some things to think about when you're pondering that situation. And that's what I was always to, trying to do as sugar. There are some things, you know, I do know. Striving for forgiveness always makes your life better. Trying to be generous always makes your life better. Trying to be kind, trying to live your life with love in your heart, which sounds so hokey, it makes your life better. Staying in in a relationship with somebody who's abusing you is never a good idea. So there are those truths, but usually our lives are much messier. So usually I wasn't saying do this or don't do that. I was sort of trying to expand the question. Quick word from our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace is the best way to build a website. Uh, you probably have an idea for a website right now. It is a good idea. It's a better idea than you think. If you have some doubt, if you're not sure, I'm telling you to go for it. That idea is good. Uh, maybe it's your personal website. Maybe it's a portfolio for your work. Maybe it's uh, 
a business you wanted to start, maybe you own a business already and you just haven't gotten around to building a website. Either way, no matter what it is, go ahead, build that website, and you should do it with Squarespace. Squarespace is super, super easy. They've got these beautiful templates. You don't need to know a lick of code. Everything is just plug and play. It just works, and it works anywhere, any device, your phone, your tablet, your desktop. Your site's going to look great no matter what. Plus, if you go to squarespace.com slash longform, that's squarespace.com slash longform. If you use the code longform at checkout, you'll get 10% off when you pay. Plus, you get a free domain. But here's the thing. You don't even need all that. Just go to squarespace.com and try it out for free. Start building your website. See how easy it is to use. You will not find a better, more simple, more elegant way to finally build that website that you've been meaning to build. I promise you, you will feel better when it's done. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Also sponsoring the show this week is HP Matter. HP Matter is a magazine put out by HP and Fast Company. Their new issue just hit the internets. It's uh, the idea economy. All kinds of articles and charts and graphics and videos about the ideas uh, that are going to power our future in business. Uh, there really is tons of fantastic stuff. We're featuring a bunch of it on Longform this week. Uh, so you can go to longform.org and find those. You can go to hpmatter.com and find those. Uh, but go check it out. It's a way to support this show, and we really thank them for supporting this show. But for now, let's get back to Cheryl Strait. You said a couple of times in this interview, like you just said, uh, it sounds hokey. And earlier you said like, this sounds like woo woo. Right. Like you said, how do you get over that? Like, how do you get over <laughs> like this, uh, the like mushy, sappy part of this? <laughs> I know. I know. I'm like the accidental self-help writer because I don't even, you know, I don't even read self-help books. Like it was the funniest thing to me when Tiny Beautiful Things came out and I was in a bookstore and there was my book in the self-help section. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm, this isn't self-help. And then I'm thinking, well, of course it is. Like, what the hell else is it, right? right. It's advice. I, when, I, when I say that, what I'm trying to, I guess, protect myself from or defend myself against is this intellectually mushy body of work that does that is in that genre. And I'm not saying, I mean, I think there are probably some great self-help books. I'm not saying that like one shouldn't, um, you know, read self-help books. I know that they've been incredibly helpful to so many people. I want to say that first. But I think a, a lot of them in that category do tend to be a little bit um, intellectually soft. They're not necessarily um, as rigorous as maybe I tend to try to be in my life when it comes to talking about my problems, solving my problems, and, you know, that kind of struggle. Do you know what I mean when you I mean say like, that? mean, like, like the answers, like you were just talking about the subterranean depths that you like to go to. Yeah. And I think what you're maybe saying is, like, sometimes those self-help books don't actually get yeah. to that level. Like, it's... Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't actually get to a very uncomfortable place. It just kind of tells you what you want to hear. Right. And they tend to be a little more black and white and not as complicated yeah. as, I, as I am interested in being. I think, too, that it's really important to uh, recognize, you know, class and privilege and, you know, race and like all of those things that, that we that self-help can kind of erase like this idea of like, you know, if you decide that you want to be a millionaire, you just, you know, think about it every day With and put it on a poster. Steps, or yeah. yeah. And like, exactly. Five easy steps to be fill in the blank. And I don't believe that. You know, I think that, I think that, um, 
that all kinds of good things can happen because you think positively. And yet I think that there, you know, that there are limits to that as well. Sometimes real life happens. One of the worst things in my life was when my mom got sick with cancer, so many people said, well, she just has to think positive about this. And my mom was 45 and she had a terminal diagnosis. She died seven weeks to the day after she was diagnosed. And she wanted to live and she didn't. And she didn't have any power over that. And so for a long time, I was really angry, I guess, at that, that sort of very prevalent idea that we could conquer our, these terminal diseases with, with positive thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the fact of the matter is sometimes people just get sick and die. And sometimes you just have to live with that fact, no matter what you want. No doctor would ever say sometimes you just get sick and die. <laughs> right. But here's the, sometimes you do. Why do you think no doctor would say that? Because there's no upside, I guess, right? There's, there's risk in saying it and there's no risk in not saying it. Mm-hmm. People want to believe that it's true. Yeah. You know? I mean, what's been really complicated for me to express about, about, you know, when I give advice to people, so much of it is things like you have to think, you have to be a positive thinker. You know, you really do have to control your mind in some way and think I can instead of I can't. Mm -hmm. But I think the danger in saying that is always like, will that be misinterpreted where it's taken to its extreme, you know, that you say, well, you know, that you can actually, you know, uh, reverse course on things like a terminal diagnosis, you know, with positive thinking. Right. So it's, it, to me, what I would, if I had to say like in one fell swoop, like what is sugar? What, what is sugar trying to espouse? Is it, it's that two things can be true at once, even opposing truths, you know? It can be true that you will suffer forever because you were sexually abused as a child. It can also be true that, that you can overcome that and not let that experience define your life. Mm-hmm. And you can hold those two truths in, in two hands and walk forward. And I, and I think that that same thing, like with the positive thinking, you, you, you can't necessarily, you know, think your way out of lung cancer, but you can have a happier life if you think positively in the face of profound sorrow. Right, right. The end, the end can be better. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the kind of major themes of sugar is like do the work, move forward, like take the first step. Yeah. It, it, it is like focusing on what you do control and what is in your power and not mm-hmm. generally not like feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah. Does that sound right to you? It does. It sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, one of the things, this is the first time I'm saying this to anyone. This is hot off the presses news. You're getting a breaking story Scoop. here on the long form podcast. I have a book coming out in like the end of November, early December, and it's called Brave Enough. And it's a book of quotes called from, you know, Dear Sugar. And uh, so my tiny beautiful things, book, wild towards my essays and my talks and so forth. And it was really just sort of born out of it was my publisher's idea, because so many people have taken quotes and put them like on posters and put them on Pinterest, you know, all the mugs, t-shirts, all this stuff, tattoos, quilts, whatever. And they, they, there's such this, there's so many of these quotes floating around that my publisher was like, well, why not put a book together? So I put these books of my quotes together and it was really fascinating to see, you know, like what have I been saying all these years? And and what you just said, it kind of 
Uh, I should have had you just do the book. So it's like the, the world according to Cheryl Strayed. That's right. <laughs> That's what we should have called the, bite, the book. The bite-sized wisdom of Cheryl Strayed. <laughs> That's right. Does it feel like, I know I'm, like maybe I, I'm asking the same question over and over again. I just like, do you feel like you have it all figured Does out? Does it feel weird? No, of like, course I don't. If you put out a book that's like, here's a bunch of things that are uh, like universal truths that millions of people have responded to in very positive <laughs> ways. Do you not on some level just be like, no, like, hell yeah. Like, no. I, I have, I got it. The opposite, the opposite. And it really, I mean that sincerely. I mean, it really is the opposite of that. I, I, I feel like all of those, those quotes and, and, uh, you know, that, that, that people have, you know, saved for them, you know, repeated on Twitter or whatever it is. Like those really are conversations I have with myself. Life is a daily struggle. You wouldn't believe how fucked up my life is. I mean, you really, it, it actually, I have no sense at all that like, that I have the answers, but I, what I do have a sense of is that I am somebody who has always sought the answers. Like I'm a seeker. I've always asked questions. I've always wanted to know why people did things or and kind of essential things. Like when I was a little kid, my mom, when her friends would come over, my mom would say, now you can only ask them, you know, three questions because I would just sit there and grill them. Yeah. You know, if it were a couple, I'd be like, well, why do you love her? Why do you really love her? You know, and I was like eight <laughs> and, and people can't even like, do, why do you love your partner? I mean, you know, that's a deep question. Yeah. Like, why do you really love the people you love the most? And, you know, so I seek those answers. And, and I think that so much of that kind of advice stuff or those, those quotes from Wild that people, you know, tattoo on them or whatever they do, put on mugs or whatever they do, um, it, it's about they, they also recognize their sense of seeking in themselves. Mm -hmm. And so they take those things I've written up as anthems, but it's not about me. It's, it's totally about their life and their truth. And they're, you know, when you ask me like people replicating my journey, um, they're not replicating mine. They're talking about their own lives. And so I, and I think that that's, you know, the kind of the original power of art. When we see a painting that we love, we're not standing there thinking about the artist who made it. We're, we're thinking about how that, that painting makes us feel like what that reflects to us about our lives or the world. And so I love, you know, when, when, when art exceeds essentially its creator, which is the whole goal of art, I think, when it becomes not about the person who created it, but about the person, the people who consume it. And I think that this is especially true in memoir, where you're writing about yourself. It's, you know, it has this horrible, false reputation for being like, the narcissistic form, which I think is pure bullshit. No good memoir is really about the writer, and it's and yet it's deeply about the writer. Well, let, let's let's talk more about that because like you, you use the metaphor like of like a subterranean river. That's right. Is there such a thing? Yes, there are. They have to be underground rivers. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. This is like uh, not uh, neither of our field of expertise. We're not geologists no. or whatever those people are. I'm going to say yes. There are underground rivers. Of course, there are. On this metaphorical underground river. Is the reason that Wild or Sugar is able to tap into those universal universal truths is because if you if you get to that deeper level, it kind of like applies to anyone's life if yes. you can if you can get there. Yes, I mean no question. There, there, the, I, the number one thing I learned about Wild by witnessing its life in the world, which is to say, its life beyond me, is that this this story is not about me. You know, people around the world 
say the same things to me about wild. What do they say? Wherever they are. They say the same things. You know, they could be in Cincinnati or South Korea or India or Australia. And they are. They have been. They, you know, I've met people in so many places and they, they, they talk to me about their lives. They talk to me. They say things. Um, so here are the common things I hear. One is the way I wrote about my grief, the way I wrote about how I felt about losing my mom. So many people can't articulate the sorrow that they feel over losing someone. And so they say to me, I, I've never read anyone who wrote my truth the way you did. You know, my brother died, or my mother died, or my son died, or whatever it is. And um, they tell me about their losses, and they tell me that I spoke for them in Wild. Other times, it's it's more about the journey. It's about you know, I went on this kind of trip, or I always wanted to, or I need to. Um, they identify with this idea of leaving and 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 traveling, whether it be hiking or, or going on another kind of trip. And um, and th- this journey isn't running away, but going deeper into your own life. It's not an escape tale. It's a it's it's a it's it's going down to that subterranean river. So they talk about that. And the third thing is this the kind of redemption redemption narrative. Mm-hmm. I fucked up, and I had to fix it. And I had to figure out how to fix it. That's what people tell me about. I did this. I did that. I you know. And they, they tell me what the bad things they did, and and how they made it better. And they see themselves and wild. So wild was like holding a mirror up to each of those things. And those are, those are very, one thing that those, those three things sort of have in common is they pretty much don't change over all of time. Like if we go back to the ancients, those, those three narratives I just wrote about, they're there too. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're, they're in like the first writing that we have, you know, it's about sorrow. It's about redemption. It's about journey. You know, that the hero's, the hero's journey. And so I, I do think when I teach writing, I'm always like saying to my students, like, okay, you might think that you're writing about your divorce or your infertility or whatever it is. Remember the ancients, because nobody wants to read your book about, you know, your little tale. Nobody should read my book because I took an interesting hike and I loved my mom a lot and she died. I mean, that's just a very um, small insignificant story, insignificant to anyone but me. And so my job as the writer was to make it about other people. Were you conscious of it when it was happening that you were in that subterranean river? Absolutely. That's the writer's work is consciousness. It doesn't happen by accident that you learn how to use your life as material for art. I mean, this is what we talk about when we talk about having to really apprentice yourself to the craft of writing. You know, so many aspiring writers that make that kind of initial mistake, they'll say, oh my gosh, you know, I had this horrible thing happen to me or this really exciting trip. And so I'm going to write a book about it. And, you know, sometimes you get lucky and you somehow manage to do that. Like in a couple of years, you manage to go from, from having the horrible thing or the great adventure and like turning it into a pretty good book. But most of us have to work harder and longer and figure out like how, how to write, like how to write a story 
that isn't about just you. And this is true whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction. I mean, honestly, there's, you know, the, the line between those genres and that one is, you know, you're writing about things that actually happen and another you're not obligated to that. But when it comes to the, the, you know, what you're trying to do on the page, they're very similar. And so you have to do that kind of, again, that, that deep sea diving that I, I always use this language that has to do with going down deeper. And once you do that, I mean, when you speak in the truest, most intimate voice about your life, you are speaking with a universal voice. I'm interested in that that exact thing. So you're you're out on the trail and these things are happening to you and you know that you're going to write about this. You know this will be a story, that this is a story of your life. You, you strike me as someone who has been telling stories about your life, your whole life. And I wonder if in the in the nonfiction side, whether there is an urge in those moments to sort of create a better story, to look for opportunities to improve the story, mm-hmm. like that dance between sort of like creating your own story and letting your story unfold in its truth. And and I wonder how you think about that. Like like are you basically like creating your own truth? Right. You know, I didn't know I was going to write about my hike. I took my hike in 1995 and I didn't begin writing the book until 2008. And so I didn't have that experience where I was on the trail and I was like, wow, okay, this would make a good book or, you know, I should do this because it'll be so good in the book. You weren't thinking that way. I wasn't thinking that way. And, and I, so I, and I think that that really made for a different book than if I had, had an experience like, you know, a lot of, a lot of my peers have had where they get a book deal and then go do that thing. Right. And then they write about that thing. I don't think that that's inherently wrong. I myself would be very uncomfortable doing it because I would do just what you said. Yeah. I would get, I would get myself in so much more trouble because it would make a better story. That's not fabricating experience, but it's, but it's altering an ex- experience to an extent. Why do you think you waited so long to write about it? Because I was obsessed with writing my first book, mm-hmm. Torch. I, when I was on the trail, I was thinking about writing all the time, and I was thinking about my book, but it wasn't wild. I was thinking about Torch. Right. So I was 26. I, I finished hiking the trail two days before my 27th birthday. I went to Portland. I got a job waiting tables. So I was working full time and you know busy writing on the side, writing Torch. And that took several years. I ended up going to graduate school at Syracuse University so I could finish the book. You know, it was like, my God, I'm 30 and I still don't have this damn novel done. And so graduate school at Syracuse, they, they cover your tuition and give you a stipend. So for three years, I was essentially paid to be a writer for the first time in my life. And that's where I wrote Torch. By the time Torch came out in 2006, I had two children under the age of two. And then I spent a couple of years being like, oh, my God, you know, writing essays and promoting Torch and and mothering these two little babies who are 18 months apart. And so in 2008 is when I thought, okay, what's what's next? You know, it was I was at a point where I could my youngest child was two and and I could start to really seriously sink back into a book. And I thought it would be a collection of essays, because at that point I had published several essays and I thought it could be I could sort of simply you know, put out an easy book, put them together. (laughs) And I was like, you know, there's one essay missing. And this is the story of my hike. And so I started writing wild, which I thought was going to be a 20 or 30 page essay. And what happened is I just started writing. And then I realized that I had a story. You're, you're 
kids are um, little able, babies, able to, but able to contend for the. So just a bit enough for you to start thinking about a book and yeah, that's probably overstating it. <laughs> Maybe it was like, I scratched together enough dough to hire well, a the, babysitter the, for a few hours a week. Right. As a parent of an eight month old, I'm hoping that like, I've got, you know, that there's a future for you. I've got like, yeah, you know, 14 months and then like, everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. You just wait. No more work. At 14 months, it's worse because they run around the house and they can grab everything. They can actually walk start breaking and hold stuff. things and throw things. Yeah. Yeah. He's so ready to break things. Um, <laughs> Okay, so, and, and did you know that Wild was going to be the next thing? Well, so I was starting to write this theoretical collection of essays, and I I started writing the, this essay and realized that it was bigger than, than, you know, 20 or 30 pages, and then it just grew and grew and grew. And, yeah, then I realized, okay, this is a memoir. I'm going to write about my hike and um, about everything that led me to it. And so then, it, then I spent just like a couple of years uh, writing it. I finished it. Like I said, I sent off the first draft right when I was becoming sugar. So this was February of 2010 when I sent the first draft to my editor at Knopf. And so in the, along the way there, like I was maybe 130 pages into the book uh, when I sorry, like really worked hard on refining those first 130 pages and sold the book to Knopf, you know, before I was finished with it. Right. So and. Tell me about going going back and like reliving that time in your life. Like how how it's so detailed and it's so rich. In, Thank you. In, well, you're welcome. Uh, in the story, and uh, I I wonder how you, from like a practical standpoint how you report something that happened, whatever that was, you know, thirteen years. Yeah, before. at that point it was thirteen years. It's challenging in ways that I think most people don't assume. I mean, for me, I remember how I felt a lot. I remember the emotions a lot. It was for me, the the biggest challenge was like, well, what did it look like when I was there? You know, what were the flowers in this spot or where was the, you know, what kind of trees? And so, uh, you know, really writing a memoir, I think of any, of any sort, but certainly of wild, it was this, it was this combination of researching. So going back and finding out the name, what flowers were growing there and then finding out their name. And then, and then I had my, I kept a journal all through my, 20s and into my 30s. So that was great. You know, when I was... You don't keep one anymore? I don't. The minute my kids were born, I stopped journaling. Really? Because it, I just don't have the time now. Also, I think that that transfer from the days of yore, you know, the, the personal introspective life that I think not just I, but many of us used to have, where we would sit in cafes and write in our journals and so forth, that is now sitting in cafes and, you know, tweeting and I, Facebooking. That's, that's the other thing. I mean, just reading the book... It's hard for me to imagine that you could have had that experience today. I know you can't. You it's can't, so right? sad. No, it breaks my heart because really, I mean, right now we could log on and we would, could read hundreds of trail journals from people who are right now hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And what that means is, you know, even if I, I'm sure there's not, you know, internet access all through the trail, but there are points, you know, all along the way. And it's really, you know, the internet, it doesn't allow us to be alone. It's, it's a portal into into the world that we can't reach. And so the beauty of that is, you know, you and I can talk to each other on opposite sides of the world at any given moment. Um, but you lose something in that too, because when I was out alone on the Pacific Crest Trail, I was actually alone. Yeah, I couldn't reach anyone unless they were standing before me and they couldn't reach me. And I was really, truly alone. And I would write in my journal. So when I was reading Wild, or when I was writing Wild, I would read my journal. And it was so helpful because I could say, you know, this is what I was thinking in this moment. And many of the um, conversations in Wild are obviously remembered the way that memoirists say 
you know, we just remember this is what we said to each other. And I just, that's a conceit of memoir. Right. Um, but some of them were, I met somebody, we talked, they walked away. I wrote down what we said to each other. So, and so, so some of the more interesting lines of dialogue, I was able to write because I had written it in my journal. Mm-hmm. One example is there's a scene where I go and I, I get off the trail and I'm walking along this logging road and I come and I, and I are on this Jeep road and I come upon these three guys, these miners who are about to blow up this mountain. And one of them, you know, lifts my pack and he says, you know, when I was in, I was in Korea, I never carried a pack that heavy, or maybe I did once it was because I was being punished, you know? So like that sort of thing that wasn't remembered. That was like, I'd recorded it in my journal. So it was helpful. Right. So much pride in the weight of that pack. (laughs) Exactly. But the other thing, and I, and, and this is something I find myself explaining over and over again to people who don't write memoir is that memory really is a muscle that we work. And the, the way it functions is that like we, most of us, when we remember something from a decade or more ago, we, our first response is like, I don't remember that was so long ago, but, but when you actually start to think about it and engage with it, what happens is your memory opens up. And the, the, the best thing I can compare it to is really when you see an old friend from back in the day and you start talking about things you did together and you go from this, like, no, I don't remember. Oh, yeah, I do remember that now, now that you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And so all you need is that kind of prompt that will that, that allows you to re-engage with that part of your brain where that information is stored. And so really, you know, working, like being a memoirist is about working that, that muscle and learning how to, you know, sort of re-enter previous versions of yourself. Did you do that in a physical sense? Like, did you go back to the trail? I didn't go back to the trail when I was writing the book, except a couple of places in, in Oregon, um, nearby. I didn't have money. Um, you know, I, I think that I would have liked to have, you know, gone to Southern California and like, you know, gone to that first place I started hiking. I just didn't like literally didn't have the money to do it, but I did go back to the place where I began the trail when we were making the movie, you know, years passed. And there I am standing there with Reese Witherspoon and the movie where she begins the hike is exactly where I began my hike. And those first steps on the trail, those were my first steps on the trail. What an emotional day that was to, to have not been back there all those years and to be standing there with, you know, a movie star (laughs) (laughs) pretending to be me and lugging this pack. That's an exact replica of mine. Let's talk about the movie and sort of everything that, that has come for you in the last couple of years. Like that, that must be a completely surreal moment standing there at at the beginning of the trail. What's it been like? One of many surreal moments. (laughs) I mean, it's been so surreal that I can't, there aren't really words for it. It's, it's so interesting that all of this has happened. And I've really had this opportunity to, to enter worlds that I never had access to before. Like I really got a front row seat in Hollywood going through the whole film, film experience because I was so involved with it from beginning to end. You know, and it ended, you know, that, that, that red carpet trail, you know, literally yeah. you know, ended at the Oscars. And I, so I just delighted in it. It was really, um, it made me laugh a lot to get to see things and do things and be in places uh, that I never thought my writing would lead me. Did you feel like a, like a interloper or did you do when you were, you know, on the red carpet where you're like, fuck yeah, I'm here. I think I was more like, fuck yeah, I'm here. 
and, and, and that doesn't mean I didn't feel like an interloper. I felt like somebody who was in that world, but not of it, you know, and I loved that I could just sit there and take pictures with my brain and think someday, someday I'm going to write about this. I, I think that any time, you know, at least in my life, any, anything I do ends up sort of just going into the big pot of like something I might write about someday. Like, you know, with the whole thing, when I said when I was on my hike, I didn't know I was going to write a book about it. Well, I also did not know. <laughs> I was, you know, it was sort of in this place where, where just about everything is. Like, will, will I ever write about that? I mean, you and I sitting here right now today in my living room, you know, someday, maybe I'll be 10 years from now, I'll be writing a novel. This guy showed up in my house. And this guy... He didn't this, really seem to understand his recording equipment. This guy from Brooklyn shows up. You know what I mean? It could be fodder for something I write. And and I think that that's the, the way a writer works all the time, um, which is why you never want to be friends with them. I'm joking, by the way. I won't betray you. It's okay. Go <laughs> ahead. You, I deserve it. My wife is a, a huge fan of yours. What's your wife's name? Her name is Meredith. Thank you, Meredith. This is the first time, this is a true story, it's kind of throwing Meredith under the bus, but this is the first time that I've been interviewing someone for the show and she was like, I would like to be there, <laughs> but we're in Portland and she couldn't be here. You uh, should have brought her and I your baby. She's a teacher. She had to work. Oh, what does she teach? She's an eighth grade special ed teacher. Oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah, she's an angel. She's like earning all of the karma points for our household. And the health insurance. And the health insurance. She's like, <laughs> yes, yes. She's earning our karma and letting me run around and like play like this. But she and a couple of her friends are just, they're huge fans. They were, they were really excited that I was doing this. I sent them all an email last night and it was just like, what do you want to know? What, mm -hmm. what, what, what were some of your questions? And one of the questions they had that I would not have thought of about this Hollywood experience was about what it was like to be like literally physically standing next to Reese Witherspoon and all these Hollywood stars. Yeah. And like, you know, you've written a lot about body image yes. and about uh, confidence and about not like playing into bullshit. Mm -hmm. And like, that is uh, bullshit on, on an epic scale. That is it like, is. that's like the ultimate bullshit. <laughs> it's total bullshit. It was there again, like absolutely fascinating. Um, before, this, you know, this red carpet season, which, you know, I, I say this sort of glibly, but it, there actually was this experience for me where, yeah. you know, and you were like, you, you began, were doing it. You were in, I was doing it. You I were was in the game. I was in the game. Okay. From, from August wild, um, you know, August of 2014 wild had its world premiere at the Telluride film fest. And we went to Toronto film fest and London film fest and LA premiere and Portland premiere and the golden globes and Oscars and, and, and also other events, uh, other Hollywood sort of things where there was actually, you know, a red carpet with hundreds, sometimes thousands of photographers. And yes, I am to, to walk along this with Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern. I mean, these two like beautiful blonde movie stars. And I, you know, women who have like, you know, they live in this world. This is their work. And I am a writer and I need to stand up with them. And so from the very beginning, of course, I felt nervous and self-conscious and afraid that I wasn't going to be as pretty as them and as skinny as them and all that kind of bullshit. But what I realized at the, the very outset is I, I went, I looked myself in the eye, I went into the bathroom, I looked at myself in the mirror and I just said, you are going to stand up there and do this. And, you know, don't, don't shrink at the moment when you should rise. And that is something I think that has been a value all of my life um, in good times and bad too. You know, like when my mom was sick, I was really there with her and it would have been easier to shrink. And I'm so glad I didn't. I'm so glad that I sat there with her 
all of that time that it was so hard to do. And that's advice I always give a sugar. It's like, be there, you know, be there even if it's hard. And, you know, I think obviously, you know, to compare like being on the red carpet with movie stars to sitting next to my mother's bedside, that seems a little bizarre. But, but like I was, you know, I think in that kind of sugar fashion where it's like two things can be true at once, it can be sometimes really hard to rise at the at the kind of most beautiful moments of our lives and or the most, in this case, the most glamorous. Um, I decided that I was going to try to shine in a sort of Hollywood way. I was going to wear those pretty dresses and get my hair and makeup done and not feel out of place in that world. But I was also just going to be who I was and who I am and be the size that I am and have the body I have and be the 46-year-old that I am and to not allow myself to feel bad about it. So I did this thing. um, It was like this mind control thing that every single time I thought something negative about myself, every time I thought, you are fat and ugly and (laughs) you look terrible. Every time I thought that, I said, don't think that. You're not allowed to think that. And it's amazing what that can do. Like when you actually don't let yourself be mean to yourself. I'm actually not surprised to hear you say that because I feel like that's a theme that runs through mm-hmm. all this stuff. It's like on the trail, like yeah. I'm not going to be afraid. Well, and what that is, is you're saying there, there you are. I see you. I, see, I acknowledge your presence and you will not rule me. And I think that that is so essential to any kind of success. Like, you know, I mean, we're all flawed. We're all going to fail. We're all going to be afraid. Sometimes we're all going to feel terrible about ourselves sometimes or regret, you know, what we did or said or whatnot or ate, you know, but, but you have to say, well, who is going to be my ruler? Yeah. You know, almost, almost on a moment by moment basis, who is going to be your ruler? But you also can't get there without some knowledge of self. Like you you can't say to yourself, you're not going to do this unless you recognize what you're doing. Right. And that takes work too. I mean, just getting there. It it does. It does. And I, and I think too, you know, we, we like this opposition, you know, me saying like, I'm not going to let myself think you are an ugly beast. It's different than, than that doesn't mean I need to look at myself and think you are a beautiful goddess. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like the, the, the truth can be just like in the middle. Like you can just say like, here I am at the premiere of the movie about my book, about my life. And I get to sit in this auditorium with the people who made this movie and the people who came to see the movie because they're excited about it. And I just get to have this moment and let it be joyous. And I'm not going to think about what I'm looking Fuck like. Yeah, in my I'm dress. Here. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think so, it's so sad that we like, we, we forget to have that joy sometimes, especially women when, you know, you're always thinking like what, what you look like, which is just such bullshit. So, so I had fun with it. I got to wear lots of pretty dresses and I tried not to get too flipped out about it. What do you think your mom would have thought? Oh my gosh. I mean, there aren't even words. I mean, that's what's so funny is funny in a sort of sad way. My mother would be so proud of me. She'd be so happy for me. My mom's been dead so long and I have traveled so far from who I was when she died, not who I was, but where I was in, in the world and in, and in my life that, that I don't even know that, that she could possibly imagine this. A, a big moment of truth for me is the, the first week that Wild was out. I got a phone call that it was from my editor saying, 
it had deb- debuted its first week out. It was number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. I think of that as such a high point in this whole experience because it was the first week and it was all I wanted. Like it was all I ever dreamed. You know, I, I like th- it would have been fine with me if we'd had just like one week at number seven and then it just like went away. I, I never, you know, I mean, I didn't even ever expect that. So then when that happened, it was like, holy cats, you know, this thing happened, this unbelievable thing that I never thought would happen, happened. And the first thought I had was, I wish that I could call my mom and tell her. And the second thought I had was, I wonder if my mom knew what the New York Times bestseller list was. I don't know that she did. I didn't live in the world of the New York Times bestseller list. It was just an interesting reflection on mm-hmm. the distance traveled. It reminds me of a part in your book where you're talking about you sort of it's, there's there's only one section where you sort of list out by number yeah. your complaints <laughs> against my mother. Yeah, and one of them is that uh, that she never pushed you to try and go to Harvard or Yale yeah. or a place like that because it didn't it didn't really register for her and therefore didn't really register for you that that was even a possibility. No, it really didn't. I mean, that's what's always when you ask like, what was it like to write wild and, and to go back and remember things really, it's really interesting for me, most of all, to remember my teenage self and my my child self, myself essentially before I went to college, because I, I had such a different universe. Like it never even occurred to me to even go to college out, out of state. Mm-hmm. I mean, that wasn't even like a, a thought in my head. When I applied to college, I applied to one college. I didn't even know you were supposed to apply to more than one. Nobody talked to me about it. And I think that, that sometimes that can be interpreted like, that in some ways my mother wasn't being supportive or a good mother in that way, but that nothing could be further from the truth. She really didn't herself know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, she, how could she say, well, how do we get you into a Ivy league school when, when like, it just wasn't in our universe. It was like, you know, going to Harvard would have been like, you know, moving to China or something. It just was not even in the realm of possibility. So one thing I was thinking about when I was reading the book was this technology thing. I couldn't get that out of my head the whole time. It's just it's like, huge. I don't know how you would do the kind of work that you were trying to do on the PCT today. Like, I, I, I do not know how you do it. Yeah. Uh, and another thing I kept thinking about was how different your kids' lives are going to be than yours. Profoundly. And how much, how much pride and meaning you seem to take from the struggles of your childhood mm-hmm. and being broke all the time and all the stuff that you had to both sort of like overcome, but also revel in like all this stuff that you have built your life off of. Yeah. I kept thinking about how you think about that for your kids who, you know, we're, we're sitting in like a nice yeah. house in a nice part of Portland. Yeah. I'm sure your kids are uh, getting very well educated. <laughs> they uh, go to public school, but no, I mean, they have a different they'll have, life. They'll have some options in terms of college, you know, before, my husband and I moved into this house. This is the house that Wild bought. Mm-hmm. And before we moved in, we owned it for like three months before we moved in. We lived about a mile away um, in a in a duplex. So it was a two two bedroom, one bath duplex that we were renting. And we bought this house. And so for the three months that we didn't live in it, but we owned it, we would walk past it. And both my husband and I, my husband grew up working class. We we would like totally freak out and be like, we can't live in that house. We can't we should, you know, and my husband would be like, well, we could still sell it. Like we don't have to move in we could sell it. And we, we had to talk each other into moving into this house. And it had everything to do with what you were just talking about, which is, you know, for me, the heart of it was like, well, why can't we move into this house? And I said to my husband, 
we remember the kids who grew up in that house <laughs> in a metaphorical sense. Yeah. And they were the rich kids. And I really didn't, didn't like that idea, you know, and it's in even before actually wild success, which is kind of interesting, even before I had any money, you know, when, when I was, you know, with those babies and struggling and broke and all that business, even then I struggled with this question you're asking me, because, you know, of course, you know, class is not just about money. It's about culture. Yeah. And I made that, that culture hop just by getting educated. I was, even though I was sort of the impoverished elite, I had a master's degree. My husband has a master's degree. You know, we were struggling artists and didn't have any money, but we had uh, access to the culture in ways that, you know, my mother never, like I said, she didn't even know it existed, let alone have access to it. And that disturbed me, you know, this, this idea that, that you're, you're right on that so much, I think of what made me was struggle was really understanding like the meaning of a dollar was resilience was learning how to get by on nothing money, not making you happy, knowing the difference between what you want and what you need, having to work really hard for everything, which I did, you know, I had a job from the time I was like 13 onward, like not just a little job, like a job job, like a job where I bought all my own school clothes, Mm -hmm. that kind of job paid my way through college. Except for the ones that your mom made for you. Exactly. That sort of life, which absolutely informed who I am, like that will never leave me no matter how much money I make, you know, that that's, that's who I am at core. So then what happens is who are my kids at core? having me as their mother, having what's happened with Wild happen in their childhoods. They have traveled the world with me. You know, all of these places that I'm going to for the first time, they're at my side and they're six and seven and eight and nine and 10, you know, and they're getting to do these amazing things. Yeah. I read somewhere and, that you went on vacation with Oprah. Yeah. We went to Oprah's house. My, my kids and husband and I went and spent a week with Oprah and Stedman in Maui and we were saying to the kids, like, okay, you guys, like, this isn't normal. <laughs> You're getting to have an experience that's kind of mind-blowing, you know? And they're like, we know, we know, we know. But they don't know, which is beautiful, too. Of course they don't know. They're kids. Like, this is just their lives. Everyone you know? hangs out with Oprah. And, you know, they're, and obviously my husband and I, you know, are raising them with good values and, you know, all of this stuff. We do send them to our public school and we don't... We try not to spoil them, even though they're probably totally spoiled. But, you know, they have access to opportunities and wondrous opportunities that that um, I never got to have. And part of that is beautiful and it's going to give them something important. And part of that is going to get in the way of them learning about some of those lessons I learned about work. Is that just like another one of those things where, where both things are true? Both things are true. Like it's good. It's good and it's bad. And also you can only have the life you have. Like, how dreadful would it be that I tried to, like, you know, pretend that we were poor? Like, my kids, you can't, like, you can't, like, pretend with your kids, you know, that, that like, you're not able to send them to camp. You know, I, the, the friends I have, I have a couple of friends who grew up, like, upper middle class, and their um, parents decided to kind of give them this kind of, like, you're going to learn the hard way, and so you, you have to pay for your own college education. So, like, they can't qualify for financial aid because, you know, their parents make too much money, but yet their parents won't help them with college. And I, I've always thought that's, like, really kind of, like, neither, like, the, the, the lesson isn't delivered because all, the, all that ends up happening is this terrible conflict between the child and the parent about the sense of withholding. Yeah, there's also this, thing, there's this safety net element with, the, with that stuff where, right. like, 
it's not real because the, it'll get paid. Like that's right. Like the, the the check will always get cut. And there's a moment. There's a, there's a couple moments in Wild. That moment where you have you only had two cents. Yeah. Like actually only had like actually two cents. That really struck me because in that moment, particularly because you were so alone that you kind of couldn't even get in touch with someone, it was like. You really only had two cents. There, yeah. There was not, uh, no one was going to cover that tab. No one was going to like, no, no one was going to pay that tab. I didn't have a credit card and I didn't have parents. And th- th- it was really that. And, and I think that moment in the book where you're talking about like, and that's too where I wrote about how I realized I'd always felt this chip on my shoulder. I'd always felt sort of resentful and angry of my peers whose parents provided for them in so many ways. And there I was, and I thought, no, no, being poor, growing up poor had taught me how to be in this moment right now, that I have two cents and I still get to do what I want to do. I still get to have my life. One of the funniest questions I get, and sometimes it's a criticism I get too, people who hate wild will say like, you didn't even have enough money for your trip, you know, and um, I'll (laughs) be like, that's what people's criticism is. Yeah. Well, they, they condemn me for any number of things, but one of them is that I didn't have enough money, which I always find fascinating because it's like, well, wait a minute. I did the hike, didn't I? Yeah, it's done. So I had enough money. Yeah. I didn't have as much as you think I should have had, but I had enough to do it. Or even as much as you thought you should have had. Exactly. But the thing about that two cents thing, that two cents moment is at least, I mean, maybe this is my own projection, but at least reading it, that's one of the great freeing moments of the book. It is. You know, that's one of the, that is, you know, you were closer to yourself. There was less bullshit in that moment. That's right. Than there ever was. There's maybe just made me think about two things. One of them is um, Chris McCandless and Into the Wild and how much money played into his need to get off the grid and how like he had to actively force himself not to get bailed out like mm-hmm. he had to take all these steps to create that moment for himself mm-hmm. and in a way wasn't super prepared for it but the other thing to, to get back to you is that like your kids are never going to have two cents right well what's interesting is like like i said you know they don't remember i mean obviously when my husband and i were struggling up until just a few years ago, you know, there were all kinds of hairy situations, you know, going to Powell's bookstore here in Portland, they, they buy used books. My husband and I would, you know, go sell books. So we make like 20 bucks and go buy groceries and stuff, but they were young enough that we shielded them from that. And like I said, it was like, we had, we had no money, but we had so many other things, you know, but yeah, they're not going to have that moment. And so they're going to have to learn what they, what, what my struggle uh, taught me about the world. They're going to have to learn it another way. And that's the thing is I think you can, I think that, that, um, you can learn as much from your privilege as you can from your oppression, but only if you're aware of it and only if you have consciousness. I mean, there's been so much happening, uh, you know, like the news is so dominated lately about obviously the terrible things that have happened, like in Ferguson and Baltimore and all, you know, all like, I think we're starting to talk about racism, a bit more, like it's kind of way overdue to like really talk about it. And what I've been trying to think of, like, how do I talk to my kids about it? Um, and class too. And what I realize is it's not, I think the most important aspect to talk to, to kids who have privilege is to talk to them about privilege, not, not about racism, because of course they're like, of course we're not racist. You know, of course we, we think everyone's equal, but, but what if we say, well, what are the ways 
in which you are privileged. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's see it from that vantage point so that you do have an understanding of really the more uh, sort of discrete ways that racism functions in the culture. And, and that's true with class too. I mean, do you notice that you were sent to camp? Right. Do you notice that you got to get your, fix, your teeth fixed when you were six? And usually um, when you're a kid and you have those things, you didn't notice because you thought everyone lived that way. I, in some ways, I thought the same thing of being poor. I, I, when I went to college, I was astonished. I was astonished that my peers had, had, had they'd gotten things that I didn't know that one could get. So one impact of, of wild is that, uh, your kids have some privilege that they need to confront now and you have to confront it yourself. <laughs> I wonder what the impact of the book and, and the movie and, and all this has been on your brother and your sister. My brother was a huge fan of the book when it came out. He was one of the first people to read it. He read it before it was published. And Are you guys close now? Yeah. I mean, my brother and I, and my sister too, we have really different lives. And by which I mean, you know, they, they don't move in the, the sort of orbit that I move in. You know what I mean? And, and I just mean in the sort of writerly, literary, that kind of world. Um, we have very different um, sort of day-to-day -day existences. And, and we've always loved each other. That never left. Like even, and, and I would, and I think that sometimes that got a little misinterpreted and wild. Like it wasn't that there was a lack of love. I think that there was a lack of ability to really stay connected in a meaningful way. And I, I can't say that that's been entirely repaired. I mean, there's no question. We're not as close as we were when we were kids. We were close growing up. Um, I love my brother and sister. They've been incredibly supportive of Wild, the book and the movie. My brother read it right, right away when I sent it to him. And we had the most meaningful exchange, I think, of our lives. You know, he, he said, I, you know, some of those things he wrote, like I never thought that they could be written. Like, I never thought that that feeling could be written. I can't believe, he kept saying, I can't believe you wrote all that stuff. It was really interesting to me to kind of be able to talk with my brother in, a, in I guess, a more, a deeper, more lucid way than, than we'd ever been able to talk about our mother's death and the things that happened afterwards. And my sister, you know, she really is just not, she's not a reader. And so when I say, well, she didn't even read my book until it had been out like a couple of years, people, I think maybe take that the wrong way. It is kind of funny and awkward for me, but it's just like, she didn't mean it personally. She's just not really much of a reader. Uh -huh. Then when she read the book, you know, she didn't say much about it, but she, I think she liked it. She told me she liked it. That's what she said to me about it. And that's it, you know? Um, but I, but I love them both. They're both good people. Who've, who've had their own struggles. Have you talked to them at all about what the, the impact of their daily lives has been, like being a central character in a movie that millions of people have watched? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because they have different relationships to it. Um, my sister was not included in the film. Right. You know, and that was an awkward thing for me because it was like, okay, you know, I had to say to my sister, like, don't take this personally. But when they adapted the film, they, they didn't include the character. They didn't include the characters of my stepfather and my sister. And it was just for the reasons that go into making a movie. You, you have to streamline the story and condense it. And not everything in the book is in the film. And they just felt like that those characters weren't necessary to the film they were making. Um, in the case of my brother, he is there. And, you know, for him, it's just been weird. Like the, 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 the funny thing that happens, you know, where it's like, oh, my God, Cheryl Strait is your sister, you know, to both of them. 
friends will be like, I saw your sister in People magazine. Did you see your sister? She's on that billboard or, you know, like these kinds of things. And so it's just kind of funny, I think, for them. And they'll send me a text saying, you know, oh, you know, I saw the picture of you and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. What was it like uh, to see your story edited and streamlined in that way? Like, uh, it sounds, you sound like you're kind of at peace with it. I feel like for some people, it's a really like painful process. There's a lot of like, this isn't true to, true to my tale, but how was it for you? Yeah, it was a great experience from the beginning. And I think that that was the important piece is, you know, I, I optioned the book to Reese Witherspoon and her producing partner, Bruna Papandrea, when they founded their own production company, Pacific Standard, with the goal of, you know, finding strong roles for women, stories that feature strong women. They were sort of tired of what they were seeing in Hollywood. And I think because Reese obviously stars in the film, people assumed that this was like a big Hollywood production. But actually, Wild is an indie film um, made for what's considered quite a low budget in Hollywood. And um, what that meant is we had more creative control. And I think that was really important to Reese. She, she from the very beginning, our first conversation when I first was considering, you know, letting her option, it was like, I asked her, well, what is your vision? What do you, what do you, why do you want to tell this story? And it was because she really identified with me. She identified with the story I was telling in that same way. We were just talking about that kind of universal uh, connection of building that bridge between my life and your life. Reese felt that. And she wanted to have that story, have all of its complexity and humanity. She wanted the story to end on the bridge with the woman who has 20 cents and no job and no home and no man and all that stuff and that she's totally okay. She wanted to tell that story. And so every choice they made all along the way um, was in service to that. Mm -hmm. When we talk about like my Hollywood experience, I actually had a a not so Hollywood experience because always it it was creativity that was honored. It wasn't what's going to make this story the most palatable to the masses. It Mm. was, what is the meaning of the story? Nick Hornby, who wrote the script, had that vision. Jean-Marc Vallée, who directed it, had that vision. Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern and all of the people who were in the movie had that vision and and they saw it out. Did it feel like you? Did it feel like a version of you? Well, that's it. Watching the movie is so interesting to me because it goes in and out of feeling like me. Absolutely, it feels like a version of me. Now, some scenes are right from my life. And they're so real that it takes my breath away. Like every time I see it, I'll just, you know. You, I mean, it, 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 I assume that this is probably not right, but it feels like, it, it must feel like, like a, almost like a dream. It does. It's so surreal. It really, I mean, I keep saying that real. It, it, it's actually what sur- surreality is. It feels like, like an altered reality. Because there's reality and then it's just an alteration of it, right? But um, but then other scenes are like, no, that never happened. Like, I never did have sex with two guys in an alley. So when I see that scene, I'm like, nah, you know. <laughs> and like, uh, like I would have changed that scene. I would have changed that piece of the movie. But I also understood what Jean-Marc needed to do. You know, in film language, he needed to communicate really quickly yeah. th- about this kind of destructive promiscuity. And so I wasn't going to impose myself there, you know? Um, but yeah, it was, so it was, I go in and out of really feeling like it's me, but mostly it does feel like me. And Reese, all my friends were like, man, you know, Reese really bore a striking resemblance to me, especially me at 26 is really, really fascinating the way she portrayed me. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like I watched the movie this morning. I hadn't seen it until this morning. Oh really? Yeah. I watched it this morning. I, Cause I wanted to, like, I really, really didn't want it to color 
Right. Like, I, you know, I reread Wild. I reread all this Dear Sugar stuff. I really didn't want it to feel like like it was like Reese Witherspoon yeah. in the movie, you know? Uh, but I got to say, like, even now, it's like you're like 90% you, the person who's sitting in front of me, and also like 10% Reese Witherspoon. That's not bad. That's good. <laughs> I like that percentage. Yeah. Reese is pretty awesome. We all became like family. I want to talk a little bit about uh, fear and yeah. fear as it relates to writing. Very constant theme on this show is people talking about the anxiety of their next story and their next piece and where that's going to come from. And I think one of the like things that we hear over and over again uh, that people find value in in these conversations is hearing that these people who have kind of reached great heights in this profession still feel that anxiety and that that anxiety is relatively universal. But the kind of writing that you do, particularly I'm thinking about all of it, I guess, and I don't think this is just about memoir because it is about the stories that you tell in Dear Sugar. You're putting yourself out there. There are ugly parts of yourself there. But even more than that, like getting to our subterranean river mm-hmm. is some scary shit. It is scary to write that way, to try and get there because in part you might not do it. You might end up in like the mushy self-help section of right. the bookstore. And I'm interested in just how you get over that. How do you top that fear? How do you take whatever, take your first step, whatever cliche I could throw Mm -hmm. at you? Like, I always remember that the best things come from fear. I mean, when you visit the subterranean river, the stakes are high and why bother writing anything in which the stakes are not high? Right. You know, I mean, I think that the, the writing that matters the most to me and to you and to all the readers in the world is this writing that tells us who we are and risks that uh, profound, deep vulnerability. And so I really keep faith with that. You know, I really remember that the best things that have come from me have risen from me being the most terrified, the most fearful of rejection. When I say the stakes are high, what I mean is, you know, if you deliver this manuscript and it's rejected, what they have rejected is your heart. And if you haven't handed that over, you haven't handed it over. Like, I I really don't think I've done my work unless I've basically handed somebody my heart. You know, all three of my books, that's what I felt like I was handing to the editor, to my agent, and to the world when it gets published. You know, sometimes I think that we talk, when we talk about emotions, we use the words like the heart, you know, we think we're talking about the sappy shit. We're not talking about sappy shit. I'm talking about great rigor when it comes to craft and intellect and thinking things all the way through and mastering the form and all of that kind of stuff. But I'm, but I am also talking about deep vulnerability. And so it's scary. You know, it's also really, um, you know, before, um, I wrote wild, the scary part was what will probably happen is I'll hand the world my heart and nobody's going to give a shit. Okay. That's usually what happens, right? It's usually what happens with art. That's the history of the arts, okay? It's just the fact of it. <laughs> like when I teach classes, I'm like, you know, the poor students like look at me like with such horror because right. I say, listen, if you manage to be lucky enough to be one of those people who actually manages to finish a book, which by the way, is only going to be like, you know, only a few of you in this room, probably it won't be published. And probably if it is published, not many people will read it. <laughs> and probably, like, I just go on and on and on. And they're like, horrified. And I don't mean it to be discouraging. I mean, 
like I actually feel fortunate that I embraced that truth before the crazy ass shit that happened with Wild happened. Because then it like felt like crazy ass shit, it's and not like, like not like it was like owed. Exactly. Well, like every day of my like every day of my life since the crazy ass shit happened with Wild, I'm like. I am fully aware this is crazy ass shit. Now, this doesn't mean that I don't think I worked my fucking hiney off to have that success. I did. I actually worked my ass off. I also know it would be true that I worked my ass off if like nobody read wild. The crazy ass shit wasn't guaranteed. That's right. The, the hard work is what's true. The crazy ass shit is like the lucky, crazy ass, you know, <laughs> since that's going to be our phrase, it's just the luck of life, the great fortune of life. Now that's it, it, what I'm trying to make a distinction here is between, I mean, I think there's a long history of women, especially saying, well, you know, I just got lucky. I didn't just get lucky. I worked my fucking ass off and then I got lucky. And if I hadn't worked my ass off, I wouldn't have gotten lucky. So you have to do the work. You always have to do the work. And Part of the work is about getting comfortable, being uncomfortable, learning how to say, hello, fear. Thank you for being here because you are my indication that I'm doing what I need to do. In your experience, is that something you have to learn once or something that you learn multiple times? Every day, all the time. I mean, that's the thing. That never changes uh, for me. Like writing has, has never gotten easier. There are things that I know now that I didn't know before. Like um, what? Well, like trust your intuition. Yeah. Like if you, you know, the, the way it feels to write a book is that you can't write a book. You know, I mean, I, I remember with wild just being like in the middle of it and just like, you know, I can't do this. Like I actually cannot do this. I'm writing this book and it's a failure and it's a mess and there's no way on this green earth that I will ever finish it. And I remembered that I felt that way when I was writing Torch. When, when I, if you took my journals, like when I die and some, you know, <laughs> my kids read my journals, what they're going to find is one of the funniest things for me is if you just read my journals during the years that I was writing Torch and you didn't know that Torch had been published, you would think that I had failed to write my novel because the whole journal is me lamenting about how I can't write and what a failure I am. And, you know, all of all, just all of this negative stuff about how I can't do it and I'm not doing it and I tried to do it, but it sucks. And I did it, but it's not working. You know, all of that. That's the, that's the narrative. And then meanwhile, what I was doing is writing my book. So then with Wild, I was like, oh, this is how it feels to write a book. I'm writing a book because I feel like a failure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so here we go again, gang. And, you know, now working on, I mean, I have this, this quotes book coming out, obviously, but then I'm, when I say my next book, I mean like the next book that I'm you know, actually writing. Right. Not copying. <laughs> Not copying. <laughs> but I mean, you know, my next book, it's like, I can't do it. And, and now there's another reason that I can't do it, um, which is now I do have an audience. Yeah. And now people actually are waiting for the book. It's not that the world doesn't give a shit. The world is like, where's your next book? Yeah. Which also has its own like mind fuck tyranny. Because sure. it's like, and I've said, I'm like, you're probably not going to like it. It's probably not going to please you. It's probably not going to hit all the bells that Wild hit sort of culturally, you know? I mean, for whatever reason, Wild just rang a lot of those bells at this moment in time. You think this is about a moment in time? Because before we were talking about like how it had the three pillars of the ancients. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But I also think what I mean by that is it's, it's connected to that crazy ass thing. Like, I think a lot of 
books hit the notes of the ancients. And then for whatever reason, like 20 people read it, right? right. There is some, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine this morning. He told me I didn't, I have never read it, but there's another book about like uh, by a guy who walked the PCT. There are several books. Yeah. I mean, I think people don't know that. Wild is just one of many books about people hiking the PCT. It's just the one that the crazy ass shit happened to happen for. Yeah, but it's but that too again is Wild is probably the most literary book. Yeah, I, I don't you know mean, what I mean. I don't mean to like get into like a qualitative. Yeah, account. yeah. It's like you books. never. What I mean, like so. Let's tear this. Let's break this down. I let's think it's it important. Down. I think it's important because it's like what I mean is I I do think that when a book does like what Wild did, it, it's hitting that universal note. It's you know a writer who did his or her work. It's also like. Oh, who knows? Like, right? Yeah. What? What? What is the convergence? Why are we ready to hear this story right now? Do you have a theory? I don't. I don't. But I do think that 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 sometimes plays into it, uh-huh. right? Twenty years ago, would we have been ready to hear a story about a woman hiking the trail? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't think we can know that. I hadn't thought about that. Like, what what that moment was? I, Maybe I mean, I'm wrong. Maybe it's not. <laughs> I am sure you're right that there is something about the moment that we're in right now, where a story that can end with a woman broke on a bridge with no man right? Uh, and feeling okay resonates. It's and, like the anti-fairy tale. Maybe, I mean, maybe part of its connection was about that. I also think, I mean, at least for me, I, I think the technology stuff is real too. I, I just, it was, it was so recent that all of the cultural touchstones people reading the book remember all the songs you're singing yeah. are songs that people know you're going to REI yeah. like it's it's like it's it's present in that way and yet to me it feels completely inaccessible the idea that you could go off off the map like that no see and this is what i'm talking about when i say that i think that part of you know, part of its popularity has to do with the moment. I'm writing about fantasy element. There is. And I'm writing about like the kind of the last moment or almost the last moment in America that, that it, it, that we weren't all walking around, you know, checking our email with cell phones in our back pockets. Right. Like it really, it really, I mean, it took a while, a little bit longer for cell phones to become part of life, but pretty quickly, you know, by, by the late nineties, a lot of people were on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. In 1995, they were not. I remember being on the trail, meeting another hiker, and she and I were sort of exchanging addresses, and she said, do you have email? And I was like, what's that? I said, I, I've heard of email, but I don't understand what it is. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, you're at your computer, and then you just you get like letters on your computer. Right. And I was like, this idea seemed preposterous to me. And it's funny to think of that because this is, like you said, it was only 1995. We know, we remember the, the songs that were popular then. And yet it was this other world because we weren't all connected to each other. That's like the, but it's connected to the two cent lack of a safety net, right? Yeah. Is like, if you did that now, even if you were like, I'm going to, I need this time to myself. This is about being alone. I'm going to yeah. be cut off. The thing you would say is like, I'm going to leave my phone off the whole time. Yeah. That would be a crazy thing to do at this point would be yeah. to not take a phone because at any point, like that moment, whatever, like when you're in the desert with no water, uh, you, you might be like, I'm going to call somebody and get some water out of here. Cause I'm like, right. Might die now. But that idea that the, that technology, at least when it comes to venturing into the wilderness makes us safer, I don't buy it. First of all, was it like there were droves of people dying in the wilderness and then the (laughs) cell phone was invented and now like nothing bad is happening? No, it wasn't that way. You know, I think that we, 
very little has changed when it comes to how dangerous the wilderness is. If anything, I think having technology out there with us, you know, with us, it makes us like take more risks. You think, well, if I do run out of water, I can always call somebody. Yeah. And I just feel like it really, all the technology does in the wilderness is rob us of the opportunity to have what humans have had throughout all time until like the last, you know, 15 or 20 years, <laughs> That's the part which I'm is talking about. solitude, yeah. which is actual solitude. Do you know you're, what are you 33? Did you say? Yeah. Okay. Have you, and, and maybe, maybe you're old enough to remember this. I'm really curious, uh, you know, in your life, your experience, have you ever been out in the wilderness and nobody knows really exactly where you are? And if you needed to communicate with somebody, it would be at least a day before you could communicate with them. Have you ever been that alone? That's a good question. I have been in like countries alone where no one knew where I was, but there was like an internet cafe somewhere probably. Right. If you could in an hour or two. Yeah. I always had the ability to like, you know, I I mean like I'm talking about like 2000, like 99. Mm -hmm. I had a safety net. But even that little bit where like, Nobody knows exactly where I am. Yeah. But wasn't that kind of liberating? Yeah. And it was over so quickly. Yeah. It was over so, so quickly. I mean, I feel the same way about like, I graduated from college in 2003. So like the internet was very present, but like I went to the library to use yeah. the internet, you know? Sure. Like I would check my email once a day yeah. and then like go about your life. And I feel like the freshman when I was a senior all showed up with cell phones Yeah, and like no one I knew had a cell phone, you know, it was like that, it was that close. Yeah, no, it changed. I mean, even just in this time we've been talking, the hour or so or two hours now, I think, you know, we haven't checked our email, but I'm a little bit conscious of that. Aren't you? Like, oh, definitely. people have emailed us and I, I can feel them stacking up. Yeah, I mean, I, like, <laughs> we, we could talk for a long time about my, like, uh, anxieties around, like, buzzing and messages and all that bullshit. <laughs> and, like, uh, you know, but there's something different about, I just do, like, to cap that idea. I just think it's, like, if you're looking for what that thing about this moment was that connected with that book, at least for me, it was, I, I cannot wrap my head around how I do it. Right. Oh, and then it's like a nostalgia for, for what we've lost, yeah, you know, it, the real so solitude, yeah. real solitude. Um, one of my favorite books about the wilderness, probably my favorite book about the wilderness, Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey. Have you ever read it? Mm. Oh, it's so good. I, I read it when I was like 19 or 20. And then I just read it again last year. And it's it's this incredible book. And and he writes about being alone and not being connected. And like the way that you interact with people is you they are in your company. They are present with you. And that's that's it. Like that's the way you communicate with people. And we are losing something. I mean, and I love technology. Don't get me wrong. I, I have, you know, all of those connections and communications and I totally treasure them and value them. I am not by any stretch condemning technology, but I do think, you know, why can't we say no to ourselves ever? Like, why can't we just mostly agree that when we go onto hiking trails or on the wild rivers or rock climbing or whatnot, that we do not have our cell phones with us? our internet connections. Like what if we as a society agreed that it was like a faux pas, you know, it's like pulling it out of the opera, but people pull it out of the opera too. Yeah. I think, I do think we're headed, like, I do think it's going to become a faux pas. Like, I think it, like it's going to be bad manners to use your phone. I think people are going to like use your phone, like you use the bathroom, but 
at the same time, people are going to be wearing their phones and like their fingernail. Right. And you're not even going to know when they're checking their phone. <laughs> Is that what you think? Yeah. Ugh. I think it's going to, I think it's like, yeah. I, think, I have despair about this because I too. really, I'm really a huge, Clearly. huge part of my experience was about real solitude, like yeah. p- solitude period. Like no question. One of the ways that I look at the world is people's self-knowledge, their happiness, their uh, whatever that thing is that, you know, means you're comfortable the, with yourself yes. in the world. The inner jelly core feels okay. The inner jelly core is a way better way that I've ever put that. <laughs> that your inner jelly core has a lot to do between the gap between the way you live your life and the values you espouse, who you say you are and who you really are. Mm-hmm. For a memoirist, for someone who has made a name for herself, writing about herself, writing about her own subterranean river. Right. <laughs> well, you just mix up all the metaphors. There's this third thing, right? The there's inner this... jelly core, there's a little <laughs> canal that leads right. to the subterranean river. If you step on the inner jelly core in the subterranean river, your foot will sink in, but not all the way to the bottom. It like floats a little bit. Uh, um, here's what I'm asking about, right? There's like a gap between who, who, the way you live your life and the values you espouse. And then there's this third person. There's this third Cheryl Strayed, which is the writer and the, and the person you put out. And, and I'm interested in how close those three things are. Right. Well, the gap, the gap between the way I live my life and the values I espouse, that question, I think it's, I think it's a pretty narrow. I mean, I think it's about as wide as like most people with good intentions. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, do I, as, as I said earlier, you know, do I fail sometimes? Do I wish that I'd done this thing instead of that thing sometimes? Do I f- feel like sorry or regretful or like, uh, why the hell did you do that sometimes? Absolutely. But not, but not in any kind of extreme, severe way. I think the thing I was asking was, how close is the Cheryl Strait in your writing to who you are? Well, you've been sitting here talking to me for two hours. What do you think? Do, you, do I seem like you thought I would be? Yeah. 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 I think that the person I am on the page is pretty close to who I am in real life. How do you get there? Well, see, that's, that's always the most fascinating question to me, because to me, it would be the other place that would be harder to go. Like, how do I get there? I didn't try to get there. You know, I, when I'm writing the best, I'm I'm not pretending to be somebody else. Like one of the most interesting experiences of my life as a writer was that with my first book, Torch, they didn't make an audio book of it until after Wild was a success. And so they asked me to read the audio book. And so I had not read Torch, my first book for, for like maybe five or six years since I had published it. Um, and then there I was in the studio reading it out loud. And what was fascinating to me about this book, this book, which I, you know, put my whole heart into and tried so hard and did my best. I was, when you read your book out loud, you really have to inhabit every word. You have to say every word and feel every word and know what it means and how it should be said. So I got deep into that story again. And I could go line by line and paragraph by paragraph and page by page. And I could point to where I was trying to be Raymond Carver and where I was trying to be Mary Gateskill, and where I was trying to be Toni Morrison, and Alice Munro, and Richard Ford, and on and on and on. And this isn't to say that I plagiarized them. I didn't. But I respected them and admired them, and I was trying to learn from them. And so I was trying to be them. I was trying to 
to, to find my voice by imitating theirs in some regard. And in wild, even though those influences are there in the water, you know, of that they're, they're in, the, in my subterranean river as a, as a writer, um, they're the sort of water that I rise out of. They're, I couldn't point to them on the page. There's not one sentence in wild that I would say, well, there's my Mary Gateskill sentence. Every sentence in wild is a Cheryl Strayed sentence. And of course, it's born of all of these influences and all of these things. But what happened is I relaxed. I was trying really hard to be impressive with in Torch. And the way to be impressive then for me was to be Richard Ford or Alice Monroe or whoever. And then by wild, I sort of let my defenses down. And I realized the only person I can be is me in real life and on the page. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to try to really like get out of my way and, 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 you know, create a persona that is like the truest expression of my own voice and everything I've learned and everything I've read and everything I wanted to be and, and let that sit there on the page and, and be what it is, whether it's impressive or not. And so I think that that's the best answer I can give you about that kind of like, am I really that person? It's like, that's all I can be. I didn't, the the work I had to do to get there was to learn how to write. And the work I would have to do to try to be somebody else on the page than who I really am would be so much harder. I mean, it would be like moving backwards, you know? Must be incredibly validating to uh, find your voice and then have it be followed by the crazy ass shit. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? It's the glory of life. It has been the coolest thing. And I'm so grateful for it. I mean, it's just a really amazing thing that's happened. I, I never forget how grateful I am for that. I'm grateful for you taking all this time. Oh, thank you. Cheryl, thank you so much. It was really fun talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Thank you, Jenna, for the uh, overtime this week. And thanks also to our sponsors, HP Matter, Squarespace, and Tiny Letter. But most of all, thank you to Cheryl Strayed uh, for spending her Monday afternoon talking to me. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.